Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 103 being recorded on Wednesday, October 4th. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. As usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason and Scott Show Deep Dive. Today, we're going to continue our very popular deep dive series uh, and jump into something that has really caught on in the last six months. There's been a lot of excitement around this. Some of it was sparked by Mary Meeker really kind of putting a bright spotlight on this, and that is the topic of Amazon private label. Jason, I know you have thought a lot about Amazon private label, and I think the the real meat and potatoes is – um, you know, what, what I'm hearing from brands is there's a couple of questions they're really grappling with, and we're going to answer those questions and give listeners some new data uh, that this is the first time they'll hear this data, thanks to a, a guest that's going to be on the show. But before we jump into that, I know you spent a lot of time thinking about this. Help give our listeners kind of a framework for, for how to think about these private label offerings. There's so many now, uh, it can be kind of confusing. So, so how do you kind of sort them and, and organize them? Yeah, Scott. Well, I, uh, I don't think there is one perfect framework at the moment. So I'm, I'm using a number of different dimensions to sort of think about these and slice them and dice them in different ways. And so there's, there's sort of four big, big dimensions I, I think about, uh, or, or five, depending on how you count, um, the the first one is prime exclusive versus non-exclusive products. So there's a subset of these brands that Amazon's offering um, that uh, you have to be a prime member to get. So in apparel, that's something like button down or good threads. Uh, in, in CPG, that's something like uh, Mama Bear or Wickedly Prime or Happy Belly. And so, you know, here... Uh, obviously, they're they're partly trying to use uh, these private labels as um, an extra inducement to sign up for Prime and and more and adding more value to the Prime memberships. Um, the the second framework is is uh, what what we call Amazon branded versus non branded, right? And so of this ecosystem of you know now over fifty fifty different brands that Amazon has has invented. A handful of those, five of those, you you uh, can look at them and immediately know it's an Amazon product because they they literally either have Amazon in the name or they're so closely associated with Amazon and heavily advertised by Amazon that it's very clear it's an Amazon product. So that's Amazon Basics, that's Echo, that's Fire, that's Amazon Elements and Amazon Essentials. Um, but the overwhelming majority of these brands that Amazon's creating, um, it. It seems that they're they're going to reasonably extensive lengths to not make it obvious that it's an Amazon brand and have it feel potentially like uh, a standalone national brand. And so, in apparel in particular, they've created a bunch of these brands. And this is things like uh, Scout and Row, James and Aaron, uh, Lark and Row, the, those those sorts of of brands. Um, 
So the the third framework we use is is to think about them in the different categories, and this is the the normal product taxonomy. Like you know, a lot of these products fit in the electronics category. There, you know, uh, increasingly are products in CPG. Uh, there's there's definitely products targeted specifically at baby. Uh, there's a bunch of apparel, um, and now there's some health and fitness and home and garden. Um, and in each of those categories, you're you're seeing some of the Amazon branded product and some of the unbranded product. Uh, you pointed out uh, a couple to me that that were new to me. Uh, you know, uh, like that are maybe even sub brands. So in fashion, you're now starting to see like outdoor of fashion, like Denali as a, a specific sub brand in the in the fashion category. Um, and the the last category uh, framework that we use is. Uh, what I'll call basic versus luxury. Um, and so there are a lot of these products where their biggest value proposition is um, that they're uh, at an appealing price point for a good quality product um, that matches the product you're used to using. Um, and so like uh, in apparel is the easiest way to think about this. Uh, these are uh, the the you know the standard uniform button down shirts uh, that we wear and they're in their case literally named button down um these are like uh the the basic t-shirts and all all of these sorts of things and as you've talked about on a couple brands like Amazon sort of gives you three tiers of quality you can get a uh an unfamiliar you know typically like offshore product from China at a super low price point um, you can get a Amazon Basics product at a low price point, um, or you can get a, a luxury branded version of a product at a, at a higher price point. And so a lot of the Amazon products are playing in this sort of basic category. Um, but increasingly, we're seeing Amazon trying to, to get products that are moving up market um, and have their own value propositions that are driving their own demand. And they're not just a... Um, a, a value proposition, you know, for the same feature set that you could get from a national brand. In some case, they're they're differentiated quality, and uh, certainly, like Amazon Echo would be the the prime example of a of a luxury product that's sort of the the category leader um, with its own unique features. So, you know, you can kind of use any of those frameworks to slice and dice all of these different. Uh, brands and uh, as as time permits you know we probably need to create some sort of uh, infographic to to put in the show notes to make that more clear yes yeah, funny you mentioned that we, we actually have to we happen to have one <laughs> the uh so just a little history th- thanks for that framework i think that's super helpful um uh, just a little background on amazon private label so Probably the first one that, that I can find kind of documentation of is when Amazon launched Kindle. That was the first time they came out with a product. Um, and it's really funny because prior to Kindle, uh, Amazon was notoriously famous for not running TV ads. They Back in like 03, they ran a series of TV ads called The Sweaterman, where it was these guys singing – these people singing Christmas carols by a, a fire – and they stopped doing that when someone asked Jeff Bezos why. He said, "We want to take every marketing dollar and put it into free shipping, uh, so that, and and you know, lowering prices." So, uh, so then, kind of for literally five years, they didn't really run any TV until they came out with Kindle. They started to do TV and more more typical brand advertising. Then there was uh, it was interesting uh, in '09. I was so I I blogged. I've been doing this Amazon gig before it was was hip, and uh, wait, it's hip now. Oh, I guess I guess so. 
Uh, well, Ooh. there's a podcast now, so there you go. New format. <laughs> and, uh, I found this product called pins on and I couldn't, you know, figure out what was going on. And it was, it was promoted on Amazon. So they're kind of pushing it. And I was like, why is Amazon pushing this pins on thing? So then I, I kind of went into the bowels of the trademark registry and figured out it was owned by Amazon. And I was like, Oh my God, this is a new private label. So I just whipped out a, a quick blog and then it actually got picked up by a lot of press. Uh, and, uh, then I, I kind of using that same method, I found there was a list of six brands. Uh, three of them were actually just kind of like reserved. So they were trademarked, but had never been utilized. The other three uh, were Strathmore and Denali. Uh, so, so I kind of stumbled on. And then over the years, I've watched this pretty closely. So, so for me, um, and there's actually a lot of articles coming out now about this where people are using that same system. And so there was one in courts where they're like, you know, Amazon has 800 private labels waiting in the wings. And so that's a little tricky, uh, because to me, you don't, I don't think we talk about it as a private label unless it is on the site and live. And there's, there's more than one product for sale. Uh, another kind of checkbox for me is, does it have kind of a logo? Um, so to that point, just to kind of, uh, you know, so that over the years they've done more of this and what we hear from Amazon insiders is this private label group, uh, kind of outside of Kindle and Echo uh, is one of the hottest groups inside of Amazon. So they're hiring massively. They have plans to ramp up private label in pretty much every category. So, so here's the private labels we know today. And I'm going to start with a uh, the kind of a, a matrix taxonomy. So, so Jason, you introduced some. So let's start the ones I'll go through. So we'll go through prime exclusive first and then not prime exclusive or, or generally available and then category. So if we start with things that are prime exclusive and the, the most they have in the prime exclusive bucket is fashion. So they have Amazon Essentials. Um, that's things like men's shorts. Uh, highly recommend those. Uh, things of that nature. It's kind of basics. Button down, you mentioned Ella Moon. Good Threads, James and Aaron. Uh, it's funny, two of them have Row in the name, uh, Lark and Row and Scout and Row. Uh, May, which is M-A-E, and I think that's lingerie only in the UK. Uh, North 11 and Paris Sunday. There's a new one uh, that's out called The Fix, and I believe that is Prime Exclusive. Then the other bucket of prime exclusive private labels are in CPG. There you have Amazon Elements, uh, and I always get Elements and Essentials confused. So Elements is fashion. And, uh, see, I did it already. Essentials is fashion. Elements is CPG. Happy Belly, Presto, Mama Bear, and Wickedly Prime. Then in the broader categories, uh, so these are just generally private label that are not prime exclusive. You have Amazon Basics, which is the popular uh, accessories. It started as uh, electronics accessories, and we've seen uh, you know things like uh, bocce ball sets. And there, there's Amazon Basics has exploded past the the simple kind of things. Uh, Denali, which you mentioned, Denali is funny. So a lot of times they'll you can tell they test these things. So Denali's and Strathwood are the ones I've been following the longest. Strathwood's been pretty true to doing kind of outdoor furniture kind of stuff. Denali started as tools. So it was kind of a black and Decker competitor in tool sets. And then it's kind of pivoted. You mentioned it to fashion and kind of outdoor. Um, Penzon has been there. That's a home, uh, home goods kind of sheets and those kinds of things. Pike street. Um, they actually had one, they retired. That was a coffee brand. It had Pike in the name as well. Um, a lot of these are, have a nod to Seattle in there. So like Denali, the mountain you see in Seattle, Pike street, obviously. Um, and then the generally available, not prime exclusive fashion private labels are Franklin and Freeman, Franklin tailored, 
Iris Lily. Um, that's a weird one because everyone else has and in it, but that one's just two words together, Iris Lily, and that's exclusive to London and Society New York. And uh, so those those are kind of uh, – we'll put a graphic in the show notes uh, that's part of this Amazon scape I did where I, I tried to kind of organize these things and capture the ones that are actually – they kind of meet the, the criteria of you can prove it's Amazon through the trademark registry. Uh, there's actually something – more than one SKU for sale, uh, and there tends to be a logo associated with it. So it seems like it that, that kind of raises the the bar on on what we include in here, but I think it's the right way to do it. So it would be great if Amazon told us exactly uh, what their sales of all these things are, but uh, Amazon's notoriously secretive and they disclose nothing about this. Um, there are two data sources out there, though, that uh, we watch pretty closely. Um, and you know, the, uh, as Jason and I have talked, there's all kinds of different ways these companies collect data. Um, and so one of them is one-click retail. And I believe what one-click retail does is they have some uh, ability with Amazon, either direct or through their brand partners, to get into the uh, the the data that's available to vendors and they aggregate that and anonymize it and then look at some insights from it. Uh, so according to them, just recently here in the first week of October, they have said that they believe Amazon Private Label has has done 300 million so far this year. So if you've if you're kind of through the first nine months of the year in e-commerce uh, and you've done uh, 300 million, then it's probably safe to almost double that. So because of holiday, so call it I would call it 500 to 600 million dollars. Um, it, they don't, unfortunately they don't tell us which of private label is in or not in that, but there are, they do kind of then break down the top categories. And in those categories, they don't include uh, Kindle and echo. So I'm kind of assuming that that 300 million number is, does not include Kindle and echo. So that's the, the ones I rattled off, but not kind of the devices that Amazon makes and manufactures. So, and then later in the show, we're a little teaser here uh, to make it worth your while to stay around. We are going to have the second data vendor on the show as a guest for this deep dive to help us kind of uh, really drill into this and, and see if they can shed some more light on it. Yeah. Uh, and I know, Scott, it's been a labor of love for you to keep the the infographic perfectly updated. Uh, of course, a lot of listeners will will know that Amazon uh, very famously added a new private label in the last month, um, which is the Whole Foods private label. So that's Whole 365 from Whole Foods is now uh, being uh, uh, seemingly somewhat successfully sold on Amazon as a new Amazon food private label. And I, I think there was a recent uh, Retail Dive article um, that essentially said they they've sold 16 million of uh, 365 in the first month, and you know essentially we're having supply chain problems and sold out of a lot of their goods. Hmm. Yeah, the um, uh, and I think there's some data. I, I'm not a grocery expert like yourself, but uh, isn't there data that 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 actually for Whole Foods it's a pretty material part of their sales? I, I think I've seen anywhere between 20 and 30 percent. Yeah, yeah, and so I, I, I'm not exactly certain what the breakdown of Whole Foods is. Um, the like at the top end of of grocery stores, there's there's uh, folks like Aldi and Lidl and and Trader Joe's uh, that are like sixty to ninety percent private label. Uh, when you look at a traditional grocery store like a Kroger or a Walmart, um, you know they're they're somewhere in the twenties, and so you know I think Whole Foods is a little higher than a traditional store, but but not in the in the all these space yet okay cool before we get our guest on um i think the questions that come up the most i just want to kind of 
ping them off you just to get the conversation going here. So um, a lot of this gets started because of that uh, battery data that's out there that shows that Amazon essentially came out with a, a private label battery. Uh, and this is like, you know, typical household batteries like double A's, triple A's, CD and that kind of thing. Um, and it quickly became the number one seller. Uh, so, so really kind of took share from Duracell and Energizer and those kind of guys. So, um, you know, if you're a brand out there, um, and you're, you know, as, as we've talked on the show, brands are in a different variety of, of their current Amazon strategy. Some are, uh, taking a deep, you know, I want to do everything. So we had, for example, Durrell Juvenile while they're, uh, you know, they are doing everything they can on Amazon. So that's kind of the, I'm going to dump, jump into the deep end of the pool. And then we have folks dipping their toe. And then we have folks that are just kind of sitting out on the sidelines. Um, when it comes to private label, what's your advice you offer to brands uh, yeah. within Amazon? Yeah. Um, well, so uh, obviously brands is a super broad term. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm uh, answering in terms of the, the kind of categories we're talking about on the show tonight. So food and CPG and health and uh, mostly the basic sides of apparel. So, you know, if, if you're talking about Gucci as a brand, my answer might be a little different. Um, but, but in general, brands have two problems. They have the problem they know about um, and the problem they don't know about with Amazon, right? Like the problem they know about is Amazon is a super powerful fast-growing platform uh, that's now gotten in their space and making products that compete with them, right? So so Amazon being a private label competitor or, a, or you know, I often talk to them about being a, 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 a branded manufacturer competitor as opposed to a private label because many of these, these products ha- have a much higher value prop than just a private label. Um, you, you have to address that. The problem that a lot of brands aren't aware of and, and certainly should be aware of is people just shop different digitally and digitally has fundamentally changed how people shop and a, a huge pro, uh, proportion of, of uh, North American consumers are using digital to help them make purchase decisions. And so, you know, Amazon's scary both because they're good at selling stuff digitally and they're making their own stuff to sell. And and so in general, when I talk to a brand, I say, hey, the first thing you need to learn how to do is be great at selling digitally and you should use Amazon as an example. Right. And so, you know, in almost any category, you can pull up the the Amazon uh, label version of their PDPs and compare it against, you know, who you think of as a market leading national brand. And you'll just see how much richer and better executed and much better content is on uh, the Amazon PDPs. So those are really templates for how to sell digitally. Um, and if you're a brand in most of these categories we're talking about, I do believe you need to be on the Amazon platform. That's where a ton of the consumers are. That's where a bunch of the money is. Uh, you know, depending on how many prime members you believe Amazon has, those are the most locked in consumers in the marketplace. And you're only going to reach them if you're on the Amazon platform. So even though Amazon's a friend of me in general, I think you need to be on that platform, and I think you need to be using that platform to build um, your chops around digital merchandising and digital selling. Um, and so, I think that's certainly a key. Uh, I, I, you know, part of consumer shopping different digitally 
you know, you need to be thinking differently about how you differentiate your products. And in the store, it was about the point of purchase uh, packaging and the displays and your promotion strategy and your national television campaigns. Um, in the digital world, it's a lot more about trust, transparency, social proof. There's a lot of new currencies that, that you need to start developing. And there are things that you have competitive advantages on because you're this well-known, well-used national brand. So it should be easier for you to collect ratings and reviews and develop social proof than it is for a net new brand launched by a a, a retailer that no one shot from before. Um, so I, I certainly think there's opportunities to improve your your uh, digital merchandising um, that leverage your, your core strengths. Uh, and... In doing all this, I think it's super important that you have a direct-to-consumer um, portion of your business. So if you're already selling direct-to-consumer, you ought to be using that channel as your learning lab. You ought to be doing constant tests and evolution and different uh, content and, and uh, um, different product presentations to, to really nail how people want to shop for your product digitally. If you're not in direct-to-consumer it's time that you start doing some direct-to-consumer pilots. And I'm not saying that because you're going to sell a huge amount of direct-to-consumer product and make a fortune. Um, in most cases, you're not. But you need, uh, when you sell through those wholesalers and those retailers, you're basically disintermediated from your consumer. And in this new digital world, you need a direct relationship with those consumers to understand how they're shopping for your product and what's resonating with them and what's not. So you need a direct-to-consumer channel if for no other reason than to be a learning lab as you figure out the best practices for, for all of these things. And then lastly, I'd say, hey, while you're losing sleep about uh, your customer shopping digitally and buying the Amazon version of everything, um, don't forget about the other thing you should be losing sleep on, you know, which is this, this coming wave of auto-replenishment and just fundamental changes to the way people buy stuff. And there's tons of stuff that consumers buy explicitly today when they run out of toilet paper or they run out of dish soap um, that they're very likely to get implicitly tomorrow either because there's a sensor in their their toilet paper roll or a camera in their kitchen or a, a microprocessor in their in their um, dishwasher and you really need to be thinking about how you're going to preserve your current market share and hopefully grow it in a world of auto replenishment when a lot more of those decisions become implicit instead of explicit. So that's a lot to chew on. Yeah. And maybe taking it up even another level, I found there's like this irrational thing, like Amazon causes so much fear. It causes irrational, illogical thinking in a weird way. <laughs> so, so here, here's what I mean. So a lot of times people will say, I'm not selling a, a brand. We'll say within the framework you, you outlined of who we're talking about here, they'll say, I'm not going to sell on Amazon because of the, yeah, they're just going to take my data and create a private label. But then I'll say, maybe it's a CPG company. I'll say, well, you're in Target, Walmart, grocery stores, and Costco, and your product's right next to a private label. You know, why, why does it bother you so much on Amazon when you've lived in a private label land for a while? What do you, what's your, what do you run into that? And like, what's your, how, how do you, why are they, why are they not able to rationalize that? Yeah, I do. And again, it's the devil they know versus the devil they don't. I totally agree with you that it's irrational. Um, and, and when you call them on it, you know, they have trouble articulating why it is different. Um, the other one uh, that, that comes up a lot that's in that, that same boat is like, you know, I always ask clients when they say, hey, I don't want to sell on Amazon because I don't want to get them my data. If, 
If you're in the diaper business and you're saying you don't want to sell on Amazon because you don't want Amazon to get your diaper, do you believe that Amazon's not getting a very clear look at the overall diaper market without you? Like, um, you have to be a really large part of of the market to to feel like you're somehow keeping Amazon from market visibility by staying off the platform. Like in most cases, um, that you know you're you're doing yourself more harm uh, than you are Amazon. They're they're going to figure out all of those consumer categories whether you're there or not. And so you know if uh, you you probably need to be there again if you're a consumer products uh, company. Amazon has 240 million consumers in the U.S. There are 240 million households in the U.S. So um, that's a pretty big market to be overlooking. That's like saying uh, uh, a bank robber and I don't want to rob banks because I don't like them. Um, It's where the money is right now. And so for most brands, you need to be there. You do need to understand that you are potentially enabling a competitor and you you need to do it in a smart way. Um, But... I think most people that are staying away do so, you know, partly for irrational reasons. Yeah. And the other one is I've, I've given these talks about this stuff. And then after someone always comes up and they say, we're, we're actually, it's either the, uh, the horse is out of the barn or it's like about to leave the barn. And they'll say, uh, don't tell anyone, but Amazon's approach just to be the private label manufacturer for X, or, uh, we're actually the guys that make that battery. And how do you feel about that? And, uh, I don't know how to answer that one. I can kind of see both arguments. I'm curious. Uh, I'll reveal kind of how I think about it, but I want to hear how you think about it first. Ah, tricky. Make me answer first. Uh, Yeah. So that's one where I generally, and again, there's exceptions in every market, but in general, I would say, no, don't do that. Um, And the reason I would say that is because manufacturing private label products for other retailers is increasingly becoming a race to the bottom. Um, you are just going to be a commodity manufacturer and you're expediting Amazon's ability to build their own customer base and test the value props for themselves. And the best you can ever hope for is to be in a bidding war against everyone else in the world that could manufacture that product once Amazon's won all the customers. And so in general, um, well, while there is short-term gain um, and you know you can protect some of your manufacturing capacity that could otherwise be at risk, uh, by by partnering to be the private label manufacturer, that's not a way to win long term. I mean, you really need to think about the shift that's happening. Every retailer is turning into a brand. Every brand is turning into a retailer. Um, and in that world, uh, if you are making products for someone else that owns the relationship with the customer, uh, you, you are never going to be in a position to uh, control your own destiny. You're always going to be, you know, in a super... A price competitive situation, and it's it's just uh, not something that I generally recommend for both most brands. Um, so the counter argument that I've heard from brands, and, and this is it's interesting, is well, we're gonna we're gonna go ahead and make that because we want to. It's a hedge a little bit. We want to see how successful they are, and we want to learn from what they do. And w- this is the only way we'll see sales of that item is if we're actually making it. So um, that's kind of the argument. There's there's some validity there. That's kind of part of that short term win that I think you're talking about. But then I do think that they, um, you know, uh, but then they always say, uh, you know, like Amazon won't be able to, you know this is outside of batteries, but like lingerie, I've had someone say, well, you know, we're the number 
to lingerie manufacturing, Amazon can't do this, though they can't possibly do it. And I, I'm kind of like, yeah, I've, you know, over a 15 to 20 year arc, I've heard that Amazon can never do this thing a lot. And, um, yeah, it, it has turned out not to be the case every single time. So yeah. that, that does make me a little concerned when they kind of have the bravado that they're the only people that can make this thing, this widget. Uh, in general, and this isn't universally true, but like in most of these brands, you end up with two big brands that have a lot of market share. You have number one and number two. And in most markets, there's an unknown number three that is really the private label manufacturer. Um, and in, in some markets, that that number one very often has has made a overt decision that they're not going to manufacture private label for anyone. And so you, you certainly see like P&G, you know, publicly say that they don't manufacture for folks. Um, the most often that number three ends up being the private label manufacturer and they do so be the reason that they're, they're uh, doing it instead of the number two is because they're just willing to do it for less money. Um, and the, you know, the, it ends up being a commodity manufacturing service that you're providing. And this notion that you have some technical proprietary advantage and that that you know anyone else isn't going to be able to make what you make or or Amazon in particular uh isn't going to be able to deal with the complications in your category like every one of these categories has great complications and there are technical differentiators and there are IP differentiators um but let's just say that all those barriers are lower barriers than they've ever been before. And they're only going to get lower over time. So that, you know, relying on that to be your moat, um, is pretty risky. Yeah. And, um, just to help listeners kind of put a little bit of math on this. So, so if I, I am one of those commodity manufacturers, what is that like a 5% margin business or, you know, kind of single digits depends a little bit on the category, but in most cases, yeah, you're thrilled to make 5%. Okay, and then if I am a um, if I'm a brand and I'm selling through retail, then that's a fifteen to twenty percent kind of a margin type business. Most typically, exactly. And, yep. yep. And then if I'm a brand selling direct, now I'm taking all that margin that get you know all that that uh, markup that retail enjoys, which is usually somewhere between thirty and fifty percent. I'm adding it to my fifteen, and that's kind of like now I'm into you know this sixty to to you know maybe 50 to 65% margin. Um, and this is when you, when you kind of think about that model, this is why Amazon's doing it, right? I mean, they can, they can, you know, they can get a lot more margin that can pass two thirds, a third of it onto the consumer, have a lower price, keep two thirds, and they'll actually on a per unit basis be ahead of the game versus being a retailer. So that that's why private label exists. And, and Amazon's not the first one to discover this. They just have the data to kind of go about it very quickly. Exactly. And then, uh, so last question before we get to our guest. Um, so, uh, we also have a lot of retailers that listen to the podcast. What, what should they do? Um, if they're not doing private labels, is that something they should explore or should they take the opposite, uh, and, and kind of take a page out of the P and G's playbook and say, we're not going to do private label. We'll have just brands only here at our retail shop. <laughs> uh, I'm looking forward to seeing that retailer. Uh, that'll be fun to watch. Um, but in general, yeah, uh, I think it's going to be increasingly difficult to uh, make a living selling other people's stuff. Um, and when we look at successful retailers across the board, they're already selling a ton of their own stuff. So um, 
you know, we, we talk a lot about Walmart being the biggest retailer in the world. Like the second biggest retailer in the United States is Costco. Um, Costco has less than 10% of the number of stores Walmart has, and yet they're the second largest retailer um, in the U.S. And uh, the, the, there's a variety of reasons behind that. Um, but one of them is uh, that the majority of what they sell is is private label product. The, that Kirkland um, product and a few other brands represent the majority of, of stuff that they sell, and they, they execute it. Um, very well. They have a, a really interesting methodology of partnering with national brands to launch new products um, and deciding if and when they'll they'll launch a, a house version of of those products. And and they they've mastered that process long before Amazon got into the space. Um, when you look at the most terrifying grocery retailers that are entering the U.S. right now and scaring the bejesus out of the traditional. Um, grocery retailers, they're, they're businesses that are predicated on, on selling almost a hundred percent private label product. Um, you know, uh, the one that U.S. consumers would be most familiar with already is Trader Joe's in that space. You look at traditional wholesalers like, um, in, in categories like, uh, office products or, or consumer electronics and Best Buy has a stated strategy to have over 50% of their stuff be, be brands that they own. Um, it's just very clear to, to be a successful retailer moving forward. Um, you mostly are going to have to sell your own stuff. Uh, that, you know, there, obviously Amazon's going to continue to be an aggregator of everything. It seems likely that Walmart's going to continue to be a, a meaningful player and aggregators of everything. But outside of those two players, there's not a lot more room for, um, wholesale aggregators of products. And so your long-term play, your long-term viability is probably at least partially predicated on your ability to build brands that consumer wants and that will cause them um, to select you versus someone else. Um, and then I would I would reiterate that, that same auto-replenishment conversation I talked about with the brands. If you're a retailer and, you know, a bunch of the products that drive trips to your store are those things in the middle of the store that are going to become, you know, auto replenishment products. You need to think about how you're going to survive in a world in which no one comes to your store to buy toilet paper or dish soap anymore. Um, you need to think about a world in which, you know, when people are shopping predominantly off lists, it's much harder to sell impulse purchases. And so there's a, a whole set of, of new business problems you need to be thinking about as a retailer. Um, and then particularly in this grocery and food category and CPG, um, we're seeing the tsunami of curbside pickup, buying line pickup in store, um, digital order ahead, however you want to look at it. Uh, there's overwhelming evidence that that's going to be a, a, a rapidly adopted model in North America. And, you know, that fundamentally changes a bunch of the value props. And so if you're a retailer, you need to be thinking about uh, how you win in a world in which curbside pickup is a meaningful part of your your business. Jason, one of the big bang moments in Amazon private label happened back in May when Mary Meeker had a slide about Amazon private label in her annual internet update. That slide showed some charts that had Amazon baby wipes and uh, battery offerings and that they had become top sellers. So this is behind brands like Duracell, Energizer, and Panasonic, where they were they were outselling, you know, kind of the name brands. Uh, the battery story, and I, I know now that it came out in May with the Meeker presentation, I've seen it either tens or hundreds of times out there. And I really think of it as the shot heard around the world for Amazon private label. Amazon had been doing private label for a long time. But that that one kind of data point, especially around the batteries, has come up, uh, you know, probably with me 
30, 40, 50 times with brands that, that were just really shocked by all that. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you look at that slide and look at the bottom attribution, you'll see that that data is attributed to 1010 data. And uh, to join us in our conversation about Amazon private label, we're excited to have Samir Bhavnani and Tim Wilson from 1010 Data, and they're going to help us peel the onion on this. Welcome to the show, guys. Hello. Thank you. Hey, guys. Thanks for having us. I'm uh, very excited to be talking about Robbie Thompson's shot heard around the world. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but that that is the big time, right? I would I, I would imagine if you're in the data publishing business and Mary Meeker quotes you, um, that's that's about as good as you can get. That's basically summiting the mountain right there. It's as good as you can get. It's also a very uh, career-defining moment because you realize very quickly who actually knows who Mary Meeker is and is excited for you and, and who, uh, <laughs> like my mother, has looks at you like, what are you talking about? But um, <laughs> for me, it's it's uh, it was very exciting, yeah. That, that's a tough one to explain to mom. I totally get it. Uh, and for those of you that haven't seen her presentations, they're usually only like one or two slides and maybe like one data point in it. So if you're that one data point, it's huge because you're the only thing she's talking about. Plus or minus about 300 slides in a 30 minute presentation. <laughs> but she makes it work. Um, so before we jump into all that, though, uh, listeners always like to get a sense uh, for how you guys came to our awesome industry. Uh, can you give us kind of the lowdown uh, about your, your careers and how you ended up at 1010 Data? Sure, guys. Uh, so this is Samir. I'll, I'll start if you don't mind, Tim. And uh, the, the bulk of my career was spent at a research house called NPD. And after spending, I'd say, almost almost 10 years as, as an industry analyst um, over at NPD, uh, I moved more into the business side. And then a couple of years later, my friend Tim, who's, who's with me today, uh, called me up and told me he was starting a company whose focus was going to be on tracking what consumers were buying online. And uh, he wanted to know if I wanted to join him. And I said, yes. And I'm going to let him fill in the, the history from there. Yeah. So my, my history is uh, I started investigating what people do online uh, a little over a decade ago at... Um, Pete, who was ultimately acquired by TNS and then Cantar. Today, I believe it's known as Miller Brown Digital. And uh, was a little frustrated with the fact that a lot of our, our studies, while they were, they were great, there was always, it fell a little short with understanding the lower funnel and exactly, you know, what it is that people were buying. So myself, along with Aaron Mendez, started a company named Quanio focused on what people buy online. And we did this back in 2013 thought maybe we were a little behind the curve. Turns out we were a little ahead of the curve. And uh, certainly my first call was with Sam. And so we, we grew Quantio up and then eventually joined the 1010 Data family to help round out their assets around consumer purchase activity. So today we have Clickstream, email receipts, credit card data, debit card data. We use all of those behavioral data sets to... Um, you know, you don't get, ever get a clear picture, really, but you're able to paint a pretty good mosaic of what's going on both online and in-store. And, and that consumer purchase data is really the crux of what we're, me, Sam, and the rest of the team are working on commercializing and bring it to the market. And if you're unfamiliar, if anyone in the audience is unfamiliar with 1010 Data, um, 1010 Data, we're headquartered out of New York City. And essentially what we are is an out-of-the-box um, 
insights platform, right? So we, we help companies manage disparate sets of data. And we also help companies understand where consumers are spending their money. Awesome. And you, you alluded to it a little bit, but um, in terms of how you get your insight, I, I tend to think of you as sort of a, a, a large panel that then augments that panel with third-party data. So, so the, the panel is sort of the click stream and the email receipts, and then you're, you're augmenting it with some, some third-party data. Is that, do I have that right, or can you explain to us how you get your, your data? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we have, you, you, we have multiple inputs. You know, really one of the things that I've learned from doing this for a while is that there's, there's no such thing as a perfect data set. Um, they all have holes. Um, they all have biases, et cetera. So it's really about the more different, the more information you can collect, the more confident you can really be with what's happening. So we have, we are actively scouring the internet for third-party data, listening to analyst calls um, for any, you know, publicly traded companies. Um, we have, and we use all of the information that's available to us as part of our data methodology for the projection of our estimates. However, you know, we, we do have our limitations and, and um, you know, we use our panel the way every other panel-based company does. I wouldn't say that we augment it necessarily with, with other third-party data research, but I would say that, you know, third-party inputs are an influence or an ingredient in the data methodology. Does that, does that make sense? Uh, sure. Yeah, here's a, great, here's a great way to kind of think about it. So there's been a huge shift in the measurement, in the measurement world, in, in the measurement of uh, consumer behavior. And that shift essentially has been uh, traditionally, if you have a panel, what that means is consumers are opting into some kind of panel and they're going to get points in exchange for answering survey questions of some nature. And that has been how the, the research space has really kind of measured consumer sentiment for decades and decades. And there's one kind of fatal flaw in, in that methodology, if you will, and that's very simply is that people forget. So if you ask me where I had dinner with my wife last Friday night, there's a good chance I might not remember the exact name of the restaurant, right? McDonald's. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. I'm a cheap date. And so what, what has happened now is that the industry has shifted and because of sort of the move towards digital, we're now able to measure actual behavioral data, right? We're actually, it's all anonymous data, but we're able to actually measure what people are actually doing, not, pe not what people are telling us they think they're doing or what they want to be doing. Sure. And, and so I, I like to, t I tend to call that like sort of observed behavior instead of stated behavior. So like you're not asking people where they shopped, you're, you're getting access to email boxes and you're actually seeing order confirmations, for example, or things like that. Correct. Yep. Correct. You nailed it. And, and in general, like we're, we're going to talk a little bit tonight, uh, particularly about uh, your insights on behaviors on Amazon. And I tend to think of there being sort of two approaches to getting insight into how people shop on Amazon. There's sort of starting in the consumer and working backwards, which, you know, you're going to see all the consumer's behavior on all their sites. And, and because a lot of consumers shop on Amazon, you're going to see a lot of their behavior on Amazon. And I, I think of you guys in that space. And then there's 
another set of uh, entities that try to sort of uh, scrape all the Amazon pages and data that's on the Amazon pages and sort of reverse engineer consumer behavior from the Amazon site itself. Is is that a, a fair taxonomy to be thinking about or do you guys do both? I think you said that you said that pretty much perfect. You know, we do the former. We, we certainly are focused on the former. Awesome. Well, I think that gives us a pretty clear uh, basis to, to dig into the reason we're all here tonight, which is to talk about Amazon private label. Yeah. And talk about private label. One quick follow-up. Are your guys customers, retailers, brands, both any, any kind of, uh, you know, size? Is it like, top five kind of companies or is it run the spectrum any kind of guidance to help our listeners kind of understand who your customers are? We'll sell to anyone that gives us money. I'm just kidding. <laughs> the, the bulk, the bulk of our customers fall into into a few buckets. One is um, what I would say is well, sort of well-known merchants or retailers. The second is um, consumer brands. And the third would be financial institutions. Those, that tends to make up most most of our revenue. Got it. So retailers are kind of using it for market share analysis and and uh, selection analysis um, or assortment. Is that is that the use case for retailers? Yeah. So the primary use case for merch or retailers would be uh, around assortment, right? Yep. If we Got can it. see what people are buying, they they want to know what they should be adding to their assortment or returning. Right. And then brands is probably a market share game. So, uh, you know, how am I doing against my competitors on Amazon overall? Um, do you guys do, is this purely online data or is there an offline component? Kind of like, I know the NPD guys have an offline piece as well. Sure. There's, there's both, there's both an online as well as an offline component. Certainly the, um, the leaning that we have is, is more towards sort of the digital or e-commerce piece of things. And what brands, it, you know, it's, it's surprising how little brands know about the size of markets and the growth of markets or categories within e-commerce. So what we've been doing over the last couple of years really has been um, giving brands a blueprint, right? Like think about like blocking and tackling. How big is my category? How fast is it growing? Which retailers are winning in which categories? And am I obtaining a fair share of that total pie? Got it. Okay, cool. Uh, and that's a really good segue into Amazon private label, which is essentially a brand. Um, let's start at kind of the, the what I called that shot heard around the world. Um, take us through the wipe and battery data. Um, and uh, that data, you know, if it was in Meeker's deck in May, for all I know, it could be a year old. I don't think it had like a time on it. Um, so if you have any new data on there, um, that would, would love to hear kind of an update as well. Sure. So just I'm going to take a, a real quick step back, right? Just to talk about just to talk about private label because you know some people really get it and some people really don't get it, right? So private label has been um, a real affordable price point, high quality product for decades and decades, right? Grocery and drugstore chains have been doing it for as you know for longer than I've been alive. And what's been happening lately is. Amazon's Amazon's first foray actually into private label began with its reading device, right? With the Kindle in consumer electronics. And from there, Amazon expanded into, um, they had like, for example, the Fire tablet. They did a uh, streaming TV stick. 
And then they did the Amazon Echo, right, which is a, a revolutionary type of device that everybody's playing catch up. And then the success that they started having in electronics led them to start looking at more traditional, uh, let's, let's call it household essentials or, or CPD type of products where you know, they look at a model, right? Who's the biggest, right? Like where has Walmart found a lot of success and Walmart had found a lot of success with its, with its uh, great value brand. And so Amazon came out with uh, two lines. One, one was, uh, one was called Amazon basics and the other is called Amazon elements. And those, those brands essentially were what I would say first started to cause fear with, with some of the, um, brand partners that Amazon had had. And basically, if you look at something as essential as a battery, it's been dominated by basically three brands, right? You know, Energizer, Duracell, Panasonic. And what Amazon is able to do is they're able to look at, you know, years and years of purchase behavior. And you see, right, I mean, batteries are something that every single household has to buy on a, on a very frequent and regular cadence. And they came out with their battery brand and what they're able to do is actually advertise that and sell it for a price point that's going to be a little bit cheaper than what the the brand names are offering. And, you know, categories like baby wipes or batteries, I I think consumers tend to think that they have sort of the relative same quality. Yeah, they do. I mean, one of the things that's interesting when you start thinking about the Amazon private label approach, right, they have, they have rolled out many different brands since then. The Amazon Basics brand is um, the largest by far, yeah. right? By our data, they're on track to do about 500 million this year in US alone oh. online sales for Amazon Basics. And the Amazon Basics brand was actually launched um, quite a long time ago. I, correct me, I think it was sometime around 2009. Yep. And Today, what the Amazon Basics brand is, is really a lot of the, the electronic or household basic essentials where you don't, um, you may not care too much about what it is that you put in. For example, Amazon Essentials is a little bit closer, or excuse me, Amazon Elements. Mm-hmm. Amazon Elements has got, you know, the vitamins, obviously something that's very personally put inside your body. It's what they did with their with their diapers, et cetera. And the Amazon Basics category, they have really mastered exactly what it is the customer wants. You can look at the data. One of the things that's interesting to me when I look at, for example, the the battery category would be you just look at the number of SKUs that are carried. And when you look at the traditional battery players that are out there, they carry literally hundreds of SKUs on Amazon, whether that's through the marketplace, which may or may not be in their control, depending on how they are, what their strategy is or Amazon directly. But the Amazon Basics battery count, I think they have something in the neighborhood of 20 SKUs, right? And they're getting uh, the great majority of their sales from just a couple of them. So they've really been able to take a sniper-based approach to, to launching these products. And they're starting to gain more and more confidence. You can see that as they start to roll out, not just with household essentials, but going into um, health, going into apparel, and no surprise, they, they seem to be rolling out private label in what appears to be all the biggest categories online. The only category that's really huge online and growing quickly that they have not entered yet would be pet, right? Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because Old Roy for Walmart crushed it in the 90s. So if I'm a pet food manufacturer, 
frankly, if I'm any consumer product manufacturer, uh, I would start to wonder if if they're not competing with me right now, when are they? And, and you know, I would not be surprised at all if there was some type of pet food that was rolled out here um, just because of the size of the category and the growth rate there. Cool. And then on batteries, you know, the, the chart I saw showed something like, uh, you know, Amazon basic battery uh, is like 30% share and then Duracell was 20% and Panasonic was, was like 12%, et cetera. Um, is that data still holding? And, um, you know, d- another kind of corollary. So, so I agree Amazon uses data to kind of come out with a better offering and a price point and packaging and stuff. But then, um, you know, the other thing, do you guys have any point of view on the search experience and, and how they're kind of surfacing their products versus competing ones? And batteries is a good sure, battleground to talk about, I guess. Yeah. So one, one comment, right? Like, when we put out the data a few months ago, it was, I think it was 30% or so they've grown it to close to 40%. So they're definitely, it's trending. It's certainly trending upwards in terms of, you know, Amazon batteries selling compared to Duracell, Panasonic and Energizer and, and the rest, you see declines everywhere at some point though, right. There ends up being a cap, right. At some point people are going to buy the brand name, right. It's so like my wife will, she buys, she buys Tide laundry detergent, right? She won't buy a generic brand or any other brand. It's always got to be Tide. And so in many ways, a portion of that business is always going to exist. And Amazon will sort of like Tim was saying, right? We'll take a sniper-based approach to figure out what's the what categories are growing and how can I do something that's different and cheaper at the same quality. Got it. Okay. And then do you, so batteries or uh, Amazon's at 40%. How about wipes? I think you had them. They were number three the last time I saw the data, and their uh, Huggies and Pampers were ahead, and Amazon was at kind of a fifteen, sixteen percent. Have they have they displaced either of those guys at this point? They're they're still growing, but they're but they haven't they haven't they haven't displaced the the, the market leaders, right? They haven't displaced Huggies or Pampers as yet. You know, Got babies it. a babies a real personal sort of thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, until you've had your fifth or sixth one. I, there's guys at work that are like, I can't even can't remember their names. Uh, I only have three, so I can I can keep it all straight. Um, are there any other categories? Yeah, none of us are Antonio from out of here. Are there any other categories like batteries where you look at it and Amazon has kind of created a, a leading um, position with without a lot of people knowing about it that that jump at it? So those are those are by like by far the biggest ones and. You know, if you take if, if you look outside of industry, when we talked about electronics in the beginning, a- Amazon is completely basically owning the home speaker space right now with the with the Echo line of products, whether it's the whether it's the portable Bluetooth speaker, the dock, or the the show, or the actual traditional Echo. And if you look at the tablet space, right, which was once dominated by Apple, Amazon's gone in there with a a lower priced good enough option and not lower price by 10 or 20 percent but lower price by like 60 70 80 percent and so they've really upended consumer electronics sales to the point which is fascinating that companies like best buy Bed bath and beyond target etc are starting to starting to or have been selling amazon branded consumer technology products yeah, which is super interesting when you think about it. That that those competitors are then willing to carry uh, sell that 
you know, arguable Trojan horse for all of Amazon's other products. You know, someone goes into a Best Buy and they buy an Echo and then that person takes the Echo into their house. And what do they do with it is they go order themselves Amazon batteries. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's what makes. So I don't know if this follows the line of private label. What gets me so excited when you start thinking about voice search and um, getting into the home there is the, the Walmart Google partnership yeah. and the Google at home experience. Uh, I'm. I'm very excited to see what the shopping experience is like for all of us five years from now, because I don't know exactly what it's going to be, but it's certainly going to be very different than it is today. Um, and voice search is, is a new pioneer. And, and I expect the, the Google Walmart partnership to be um, very formidable. You know, people, people, we talk a lot about Amazon and for good reason they're, you know, they spend more on, R&D than anyone else. I think they spend something in the neighborhood of $10 billion a year just in research, which it's amazing what you can learn when you spend that kind of money, one. But two, yes, they're massive. Yes, they're huge. Let's also remember, we know from their public earnings, they're roughly $95 billion in sales here in the U.S., which is one-third of the size of Walmart in the U.S. So the difference comes in the growth rates, right? Mm -hmm. Like you, you see Amazon growing 20 some odd percentage points a year, every year, 25% or so e-commerce. Well, Amazon is all e-commerce. Yeah. Yeah. And then Walmart growing, you know, high single digits. So at some point those lines will really start to converge, but I do think it's important while we get super excited and for good reason with all the innovative approaches that Amazon brings, it's still good to remember they're, a third of Walmart and Walmart has within the last year, I think we would all agree started to take online very seriously and invest heavily in the channel. We'll, we'll see if, if those investments pay dividends, but it, it seems like 2016 is when Walmart kind of said, all right, these guys are for real. Let's, let's do something about it. Yep. Yep. Uh, so a lot there I want to unpack, uh, uh, briefly. Um, the uh, so the size of Walmart versus Amazon is is somewhat debatable depending on the lens you look through. So so for sure, when you look at the earnings, uh, you guys had it exactly right. But I think most people would would actually talk uh, when they're comparing them would think about how much goods Walmart selling versus how much goods Amazon selling, and then you'd be looking at Amazon's uh, gross merchandise value versus their their revenue. Um, and, uh, I know Scott was probably biting his tongue cause he's the guru and all this, but, um, if you, if you actually take Amazon's GMV and compare it to Walmart's GMV and you take grocery out of Walmart's GMV, uh, because until very recently, uh, Amazon didn't have much grocery, uh, Amazon's probably bigger than Walmart right now, um, in non-grocery GMV. Um, but, uh, be that as it may, it's it's sure. For, for sure super interesting. And you know, I, oh, go ahead. I think the, the key point, right, is that Walmart's Walmart's one of the retailers that's not that's not resting on its laurels and and actually trying to go on the offense to better compete for the long term with Amazon, un, unlike a handful of other retailers. For for sure. I, I, I think there's tons of evidence there, and we, we certainly talk about it a lot on this show. Uh, it's uh, uh, At shop.org this year, that was the, uh, they were calling that the Godzilla versus King Kong battle. Um, and mo- right. most of the rest of the world just trying not to be a destroyed building <laughs> in, that, in, that, <laughs> in that fight. 
Uh, so it's gonna it's gonna be fun to to watch. Um, but before we got into that, you you were you had shifted a little bit to the Echo versus, uh, uh, for example, the the Amazon uh, batteries. And to me, the Echo is interesting because in my mind, that's the Echo has jumped this really scary paradigm that that it doesn't seem like a lot of other Amazon products have yet. Um, it may have started out life as a private label spe- a home speaker. Um, but it's not private label anymore. It's the aspirational brand, and it has a unique selling proposition and features and functions that the the rest of the market is struggling to to match. And I, I certainly think if you're a product manager at Sony, you're not talking about the Echo as the as the private label version of your product. You're you're trying to figure out how you get a piece of the the Amazon Alexa market share. Um, you, first of all, do you guys agree with that? Like that seems like the difference between batteries where uh, hey, they're just trying to, you know, they're they're not trying to create the world's most desirable battery. Although I'm sure, you know, in some circles they've they've done that. They're they're just trying to fulfill a bunch of demand um, with a, a battery that's the, at the right place at the right price um, with the right delivery vehicle. Whereas the the speaker is, you know, they've really created this aspirational brand that people seek out and give preference to. Yes, I'm gonna I'm gonna make you feel real good. I think you're spot on there. And if you think about companies like Google and Sonos, they're now you know they're now essentially licensing the Echo technology to put into their own products, right? And so what happened like when Echo entered the space is it was it was highly disruptive. And one of the things the brands didn't know because Amazon doesn't divulge, right? They, they don't divulge, for example, echo sales. They won't, they won't tell you how many echoes they sold in a given month or year or period um, is, is these brands really didn't know what had hit them until they got hit with the tsunami and they saw right. And then they saw massive sort of flattening or declines in a space that up until the echo had launched had been growing like gangbusters for themselves. Yeah. And so that, I guess that's, the 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 perfect question we'd love to know if you have any insights. Like you know, everyone's always speculating about how big the the Echo business is. Have you guys tried to size that? Yeah, Echo Echo through the first half of the year was about I think it was about one hundred and fifty million dollars. Uh, and you know, if you look out right, and this is just just kind of right conjecture and sort of a rough guess based on kind of market knowledge. I would I would estimate it's going to end up end up being in the the 350 to 400 range by the end of the year for calendar 2017. Interesting, um, and I I imagine part of it you know comes down to what you even count as Echo because to your point, if they're now licensing technology to Sonos and I was at CES last year and it was in you know hundreds of products like you know it, like the the overall revenue from that that. Uh, that property for Amazon could even be much larger than their their own direct sales. Yeah, it's a it's a fast it's a fascinating product. It's one of the most in, you know in my whatever twenty odd year career. It's, it's one of the most fascinating and innovative uh, call it inventions that I've ever seen. Yeah. So here's that's the magic question. Right? Oh, sorry. Well, I was just saying, that's the point. It's an invent. I wouldn't consider it a speaker like everything else, right? They created a new category, and there's a whole category. King concept, I'm sure mm-hmm. people are familiar with, right? Where you you create the category, you're going to get 80 yeah. percent of the revenue, um, and, and they certainly seem to be doing that. <laughs> yep. So, any other products in the Amazon ecosystem, particularly the the Amazon private label products, threatening to 
to sort of, you know, um, gain that same status? Are you like, are, are you seeing any early indications from, from anything else? Or are there any products you, you are keeping an eye on because they're, they're early fast runners? What's the, what's within the Echo or within Amazon? No, with other Amazon products to achieve the kind of breakout yeah. success that Echo has. So the, one of the other things, so moving away from technology that Amazon uh, is about to disrupt is uh, basically health, health and wellness. And so Amazon, uh, so, you know, if you think of things like protein powder or uh, any kind of supplements, um, there, there's a lot of question in terms of, you know, consumer health and consumer safety and cons- most importantly, consumer transparency, right? Like what's actually in here? Where, where does this product come from? And if anyone listening has not seen the page for the Amazon turmeric product, you've got to go check it out. It's uh, besides the fact that it's gorgeous. You look at this and they're taking something like turmeric, right? And they're basically saying, here's, here's where it comes from. Here are the benefits from it. And it's one of the most transparent uh, product detail pages that I've ever seen in my entire life. And that's just sort of like their first foray into there, right? And that's that's something that's, you know, it's not as boring as, you know, let's say a battery or a pot and pan, right? It, it's something that you're actually, you know, you're actually ingesting and putting into your body. Yeah, for sure. And it, it makes perfect sense that you'd say that's a, uh, a category that Amazon's focusing on because anyone that's seen a picture of uh, Jeff Bezos lately will see that he's getting totally jacked. <laughs> and you're absolutely right. I don't know if it's the turmeric or the CrossFit. Yeah. Uh, so any like any early data on any of those health and wellness products? Like, I it, was it um, was vitamin E the first the first supplement in that family, or you know, and, and is that like catching any meaningful market share away from the? The big players. I, I, I think it was. We haven't published anything yet, just because they're sort of just starting. I think. I think we still need. A, I think we still need several more months of data uh, before we're able to do that. But I can. I could almost kind of, you know, picture a conversation we're having with our marketing teams. Like first half of next year, we've got to publish data on how Amazon's doing in health and wellness. Yeah, and it, it, they also started off with a very slow rollout, right? Like the last time they entered Five something. Last time they entered something that was very this personal was when they launched their first version of the Amazon Elements diaper, right, back in 2014-15. So they're being cautious here. One other category to think about in addition to health, which is booming, and they're being very cautious with their approach. They seem to be a little more aggressive and not quite as shy with their approach into fashion, where they've launched several different brands. And in fact, their their fastest growing private label brand is actually a, a, a clothing line named Scout and Row, which is up nearly six x this year. Children's clothing line, yeah, Ch- children's clothing line. Sorry. Um, so they, 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 they again, they're going after all the high growth categories online, which I don't think we should be surprised by. And in some categories like apparel, they're being extremely aggressive. They're launching a lot of different lines. Um, depending on the type of apparel line that you're talking about, it's, they're giving a different name so people can feel like they're uh, connected to it in a little bit of a different way. And in areas like health and wellness, where it is, you know, something that I'm ingesting, it's certainly very much more personal than something, a piece of clothing. They're being uh, very slow and deliberate with their approach, which is the same way, frankly, that they approached uh, some household essentials. So I have no doubt that 
given the tsunami we see within the health and wellness sector online, Amazon Elements will be a major player there soon. Mm-hmm. And I'm also curious to see what happens with the apparel space, right? I mean, the, the Gap CEO, I think famously about a year or so ago, talked about maybe we should consider selling Gap clothes on, on Amazon. Amazon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Nike just on, on Amazon. Amazon. So the, the, the apparel sector would be another one to, to be watching. Yeah, a quick follow-up on health and wellness. Um, what what is the brand they're using there? Is it uh, Amazon Elements or? Yeah, it's Amazon Elements. Okay, cool. And then uh, you mentioned uh, some of these private label products are Prime exclusives. Do you guys, through your data, can can you get an idea of how many uh, folks are Amazon Prime? Yeah, we we have an indication. I don't have the, I don't have all of that data uh, sort of sitting in front of me. We've done analysis in the past on you know, on Amazon Prime members. What's happening now is, you know, Amazon Prime is becoming a pretty, a fairly significant portion of, of the marketplace because the the offerings make it a, an absolute legitimate no-brainer for for many house, you know, you know at least for any kind of like mid, middle income and above sort of families. Um, you know, if you're not a Prime member, I kind of don't know what you're thinking. Actually, well, I love the content. I'm a huge fan of Man in the High Castle. Uh, but, uh, you know, one of the things that's interesting about that is the Whole Foods acquisition. One of the ways that we all know, we've read many articles about how important Prime membership is to the Amazon strategy. I was very surprised. We had to go back and double and triple check. But I was very surprised to see that almost half of Whole Foods shoppers are not Prime members. Mm-hmm. And I, I was like, who would be that way? And instantly I realized in my family, I have two avid Whole, two siblings who are avid Whole Foods shoppers and are not prime members. Um, so believe it or not, by that acquisition, one of the things Amazon's doing is tapping into half of Whole Foods base and potentially converting them over to prime members, which is not only helps Amazon, but it's also helps Whole Foods uh, because we can see that if you're a prime member and you shop at Whole Foods, you spend over $300 more per year at Whole Foods than non-prime members. So it's, it, it helps Amazon in a, in a lot of different ways. And so I think the numbers were non-prime, non-prime members who shop at Whole Foods spend $1,000 a year at Whole Foods and prime members spend close to $1,400. Hmm. Yeah. Cool. That's why they call it Whole Paycheck. Whole Paycheck. All right. <laughs> um, I went to... I went to Whole Foods soon after the right right after the acquisition, and they had all those price drops and things like that. I was buying dinner for a family of four, including two little kids, and I spent hundred dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, they they have a lot of room to go on that. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Uh, and then, uh, so you you said on the on the fashion apparel side, Scout and Row is up six x. Um, how about uh, another one that I thought was interesting was buttoned down, um, and then they also have good threads and a couple others. Any other uh, of those apparel items really breaking out, or is it really mostly the Scout and Row? You know, it's it's uh, it's really it's Scout and Row. There's also Lark and Row, but you know, we see Lark women's clothing. It's you know they're up about ninety percent, eighty five, ninety percent. Scout and Row being up six x. There's no one else that's really more than doubling. Um, the shoe, the shoe line, what's that called? Uh, Franklin and Franklin or something. Franklin and Freeman. Franklin and Freeman. Yeah. That's up about 150, I think. Okay. Yeah. Any, um, so can you give us a number like Amazon's 
private label apparel items are doing a hundred million or were they included in that like $500 million number you said at the top of the show? They're included in that $500 million number. Okay. So that 500 million number isn't just basics. It's kind of the whole family of Amazon private labels, but doesn't include echo I would imagine, or doesn't include that. It does include echo. So that's for the first half. That's That's only the first half of the year. Right. So another way to say it, maybe more sensationally would be Amazon private label is going to do over a billion dollars this year. Yeah. Um, does that include Kindle? Yes. Okay. Got it. All right. That's helpful. Cool. Jason, over to you. Hey, thanks. Uh, so like, obviously if you're a, a CPG brand, um, you, you certainly, you know, should be taking notice of all of this stuff. Um, or, or really any any sort of national brand that the Amazon is starting to play in like any any thoughts about what brands should be doing in response to Amazon's private label strategy do you guys have discussions with with brands about what their what their sort of defensive tactics are or should be you know it's, it's probably the most popular topic of 2017 that we have that we have with all of these with all of these brands whether it's at CPG or consumer electronics or you know, even even outside of that, there's other spaces that are worried about what's happening over there. Uh, so so twofold, right? So one one is you you obviously continue, right? There, you, you continue what you're doing with Amazon, and you continue to spend money with Amazon. You continue to get your customers buying your products from Amazon because Amazon controls such a gigantic portion of the market, right? You've got to fish where the fish are, and the fish the fish are in Amazon's pond right now. But the second piece, and this is the part that some brands are not going to be able to be successful in doing, and that is to form a team and understand what is our outside of Amazon strategy going to be. And that's a very difficult question for a lot of brands to answer. So one alternative is to not sell your products on Amazon at all, and then you're you're giving up on Amazon, right? You're giving up on all of that, all of that traffic that they're generating for you. And then when you start looking at, well, where else can we go, right? So, so one option is a direct-to-consumer play. And the reality of direct-to-consumer is that it's going to end up netting you a ton, like, like nice data points from customers that really like your brand already anyways. Uh, with very, very few exceptions, direct-to-consumer is not going to be uh, a significant portion of your business. So then you say, well, what do we do about the rest of the market? And what you have to do is start figuring out what other merchants do I focus my efforts and my best people on to start growing my sales and to start understanding a world where ultimately Amazon, especially if they enter into my category is going to take a bigger and bigger piece of that category every single year. Okay. So they're, so your brands are basically host. Is that, is that what you're saying? (laughs) (laughs) It it, it sounded like that, but no, brands, smart brands are are absolutely not hosts. And I gave that example earlier, right? So there's always a, there's going to be a, there's a portion of the market that, no matter what, isn't going to buy a private label brand, right? And that's 
that's one of the predominant reasons, right? Why Amazon, like if you go to the Amazon page, you might see an advertisement for Larkin Rolex. So a consumer may never actually know that. So it, it's, it's almost like the celebrity world, right? Like, so, so Am- Amazon is the ultimate definition of a frenemy for these brands. For sure. Uh, and that, that just does feel like the new world is every, everybody, uh, uh, has lots of frenemies out there and we all have to figure out new business practices. Um, yeah. you know, one thing I failed to ask, uh, we're, we're running up on time, but I, I do want to see if I could squeeze this in. So when I look at a- Amazon's private label success, I actually think there we're bundling two things together. Number one, Amazon is a great operator. They have, you know, this ac- access to a huge amount of consumer data, they leverage that data to figure out what products and prices to offer at, and and uh, they're they're great at producing their their private label and and you know increasingly national brands. Um, but they also are a terrific online seller, and we are just seeing a lot of shift from in store purchases to online purchases. And I, I have a theory that uh, you know even if Amazon offered no private label products, they're they're you know, we still would see that a lot of the best sellers digitally and, and particularly on Amazon are not necessarily the the brands that have won shelf space in retail stores. So I guess I'm I'm curious if if you have any data to either either validate that premise and you know any examples of of brands that are doing particularly well in digital or outpunching their weight from brick and mortar, or am I completely wrong in that? No, you're your spidey sense there is uh, is spot on. It, it, one of the there's no matter what industry we talk to, uh, whether you're a retailer or you're a merchant, or excuse me, or you're a manufacturer, one of the few things that is a constant with online is that your competition online is different than it is in store. There are a lot of brands that launch online. There's a lot of fragmentation that's created, and these brands that launch online tend to be pretty nimble. Um, you know, for a while there actually, remember Taste of the Wild used to be the number one brand for dog food online um, until the more um, brick and mortar well-known brands kind of woke up and someone like Blue Buffalo kind of took over. But we definitely see, you know, these little pockets of small brands within toothpaste. We've seen uh, brands like Marvis shoot up and then shoot down um, we've seen, um, I'm trying to think, Sam, you think of another brand that pops up to mind right now. That's an yeah, online. You know, there's a couple of them. So like, if you think about health bars, right. So there's yes. a company called RX bar, which, uh, you know, basically started online and had, and it's just grown absolute gangbusters. And then you think about companies. Um, so if you think about the protein spatter space, which is a gigantic space, companies like Vega, um, have, have devoted a lot of their, their energy to focusing online and they've really capitalized on, on the plant protein trend, which like a vitamin shop or a GNC has been uh, what I would say, you know, glacially slow to adopt. Interesting. Uh, well, it certainly has become a, uh, more complex and dynamic, uh, space. I think it, uh, it could be a real challenge, but uh, the flip side is it's kind of fun because the playbook isn't written and we're all we're all sort of trying to figure it out. Um, but we certainly appreciate you guys spending some time with us tonight. 
to to uh, put a data lens on on some of these interesting trends, and uh, we're we're certainly going to have a lot more conversations about them in in upcoming podcasts. Um, but that's going to be a great place to wrap for tonight because it's happened again. We've wasted a perfectly good hour of our listeners' time. So uh, Samir and Tim. Uh, super appreciative for you coming tonight and sharing the 1010 data set with us um, as we try to decode Amazon private label. Thank you very much, guys. It was great. Thank you. Jay Scott, thanks a lot, man. Thanks, Samir and Tim, and uh, good luck with 1010. Have a good night. Until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.